makes a wonderful teacher. We have all been students at some point in our lives. And if we think hard enough, every one of us could identify defining characteristics of our favorite teachers. They might have been the ones who developed strong relationships with their students. Or maybe they devised ways of pushing us harder and challenging our thinking. Maybe their class was the fun one that stuck out to us in hours of monotonous lectures each day in high school. Or maybe they helped us grasp concepts that had always eluded us. There is one thing that all good teachers have in common, though. They approach teaching as learning. Welcome to the Independent Inquiry Podcast, a production of the Independent School Teaching Residency Program, also known as iSTAR. I'm Christina Tucker, Program Coordinator for iSTAR. And I'm Sonia Rosen, the Director of Inquiry and Reflective Practice for iSTAR. iSTAR is a uniquely designed teacher education program at the University of Pennsylvania's Graduate School of Education. In our program, we partner with nine independent boarding schools and 12 independent day schools. Our students, who we call fellows, work in these schools for the two years of their fellowship. As new teachers, they begin their fellowship primarily observing master teachers. Over time, our fellows take on increased responsibility as teachers, coaches, advisors, and members of their school community. One hallmark of our program is that in the second year, fellows complete a year-long inquiry project in which they take a stance as a practitioner researcher who focuses on improving one dimension of their teaching, one problem of practice, by posing a question about their pedagogy, systematically collecting and analyzing data in ways that help them explore that question, and continually altering and growing their practice in response to what they are learning from their data. This podcast is our attempt to capture their process in the hopes that other teachers can learn from this exciting work. Before we turn the floor over to our fellows, we want to explain a little bit more about practitioner inquiry and what it means for our fellows to be teacher researchers. Practitioner inquiry is a research paradigm based on the assumption that teachers produce important knowledge through their pedagogical practices. When we view teachers through this lens, we see the ways they can systematically create opportunities to notice and change aspects of their practice. And what's exciting about that is that their documentation of that process contributes to the body of professional knowledge that other teachers draw on to inform their practice as well. It's pretty common for our fellows to come to us with a very specific conception of what research is. Some of them start out the year wanting to use their research as a way to know definitively whether or not some strategy works in the classroom. Others believe that research is not legitimate if it isn't driven by an experimental design with a control group and an experimental group. And many of our fellows enter this process believing that the only way to gather legitimate data is to quantify the things that they see. I would imagine that many of our audience members have also been taught this idea that research is not research if it isn't evaluative or if it isn't a process of testing and proving a hypothesis. And some of you can probably relate to our fellows who think that data has to be quantitative, that it has to quantify our observations of the world. In order to help our fellows move past these assumptions, when we are introducing this project to them, we emphasize that practitioner inquiry is primarily qualitative That is, it is the type of research in which we seek to understand and describe people's experiences or sometimes pedagogical and cultural processes. We want to remind our fellows that they are not trying to determine causal relationships or evaluate something or design an experiment with practitioner inquiry. Rather, we want them to use this project as a chance to pose a question about something they want to alter or improve about their teaching and explore that question by continuing to grow their teaching practice in meaningful ways. 
They should be constantly collecting data that gives them cues about how to modify their practice to meet the needs of their students. This means that from the beginning of the project, our fellows integrate into their course planning ways to systematically notice things that they might not be inclined to notice about their teaching, their students' learning, and the classroom culture that they are co-creating with their students. Ultimately, our goal for iStar Fellows is that they will develop a particular orientation to their work as teachers, what we call a reflective stance, that allows them to think of their teaching as a series of opportunities to learn about their students' learning, their classroom culture, the way they build relationships, how curriculum and assessment shape students' learning experiences and identities, or any other number of aspects of their teaching practice. Before the school year begins, our fellows identify a question about their teaching practice. They start by reading existing scholarly literature as a way to help them better frame their question and to inform the decisions about pedagogical interventions and data collection. As they plan out their curriculum for the year, they build in ways of collecting data as part of their teaching. As you'll see in the episodes that follow, our students collect data through a variety of formal and informal assessment practices, which requires that they constantly analyze their data to determine the next steps they will take in their teaching and subsequent data collection. At the end, we ask each fellow to come up with an analysis of what occurred over the course of their inquiry to respond to their initial inquiry question. They'll develop a set of insights that can benefit their colleagues and the profession as a whole. They present the entire project in their online iStar portfolio. You can find links to several of last year's portfolios in the show notes. In this podcast, we will be centering the voices of our fellows, their students, and their colleagues. At times, we might be thinking about a particular theme, and at times we might highlight a particular stage in the research process. In this inaugural episode, we explore how teachers are inspired to pursue an idea for their inquiry. We witness how teachers latch onto a problem of practice or integrate a previous passion into their teaching and then take steps to explore the question they've posed. When we start the inquiry project, we ask fellows to look back at their own experience as a student as well as their experience in their first year of teaching. Once they've identified a topic for their inquiry, we also ask them to look into the scholarly literature and what it has to say about the topic. This segment by Sunho Park of the Boarding School Program is a great illustration of how teachers can draw on their own experiences and scholarly literature as inspiration for a particular curricular or pedagogical intervention. Sunho's question of the day became the centerpiece of his inquiry about how to facilitate students' verbal participation in class. In this segment, he demonstrates that he was able to use this strategy in various ways, collecting data to understand how the students were experiencing it. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Sunho Park, and I'm a science teaching fellow at the Lawrenceville School. I teach an environmental science and biology class designed for ninth graders and a physics and chemistry class designed for 10th graders. And hello, my name is Ian Mook. I'm a mathematics teaching fellow at the Lawrenceville School as well, and I'm Sunho's roommate. So today I want to talk about a specific intervention that I've been incorporating this year in my classroom as part of my inquiry project. So is there a story or a teacher you had that led you to your inquiry project? Yeah, so when I was an undergraduate, I took a biostatistics class during my junior year. It was a small class with about 20-something students. And unrelated to statistics, the professor often started the class with a silly question. 
If you had to empty out Lake Champlain and fill it with anything but water, what would you fill it with? If you had to get a tattoo on your forehead, what would you get? If you had to be a kitchen utensil, what would you be? It was fun. I think most of us in the class generally just sat with our friend groups. But by answering these questions, we got to hear from everyone in the class. And we also got a little bit more comfortable being silly in front of each other. And I think this helped us create a more enthusiastic and open, productive environment, uh, both during class-wide discussions and group work. During my first year in the Penn Fellows program, I did a lot of reflecting on my own experience as a student. I was quiet in some of my classes, but quite vocal in other classes. I'm sure that my personality played a role in how frequently I spoke up in class, but the readings and teaching experience, I realize there's a lot more than just the individual's personality that can affect how much a student wants to speak up in class. There's so many like invisible yet powerful strategies that teachers can implement to draw certain behaviors and energies from students. The classroom is a social environment as much as it is an academic one, if not more. It consists of so many student-teacher interactions and student-student interactions. Yeah, I totally agree. I think I found pretty much the same thing in my classroom as well these last year and a half. Yeah, so we have to be aware that we're wearing a teacher hat in front of our students and use our position to provide an environment conducive to learning and positive social activity. We also have to be aware that students are in a social space surrounded by their friends during class. So this had led to my inquiry question, how can my students and I create an environment where all students are compelled to vocally participate? So keeping this in mind, the social aspect of the classroom, I wanna make the students feel more comfortable so that they're not afraid of using their voice. So are you asking your students what kitchen utensil they want to be or what tattoo they would get on their forehead? Um, sort of. So Weinstein and Novoivorsky say that to build a strong classroom community, students, students need to learn uh, or get to know each other uh, really well, not just in the beginning of the year, but throughout the entire year. So I want to tailor these questions to getting to know one another kind of questions. So I went online and looked up get to know you questions and conversation starters. I've called them question of the day and we've been doing this in the beginning of every class, um, but one of my section has abbreviated as QOTD and another section has, uh, they, they decided to call it as inquiry per sunrise. So you went and interviewed some of your students about QOTD, right? Could we listen to what they had to say? Of course. Um, how do you feel like your participation compares in ICAPS, this year's ICAPS, versus your other classes? I participate a lot more in ICAPS. Yeah, in same, ICAPS? for sure. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I think I got lucky with ICAPS this year because I actually have a lot of friends in it, which is super nice. But in a lot of my other classes, the teachers like might be older, like a little intimidating. Yeah. And I don't want to speak as much because I'm like so scared of being wrong. But like the environment that we've created in ICAPS is just like very different from that. And like, I really don't care at all if I'm wrong. Like if I'm wrong, it's just funny. And like, <laughs> and I'm usually wrong, but <laughs> you just like kind of laugh it off because like I'm sitting next to like my friends. So it's whatever. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So here's the question. What, what are your thoughts on QOTD? <laughs> I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> I'm 
I actually really, really like QOTDs, and in the beginning of the year, I just saw them as, like, something fun, like, something fun to look forward to, because I feel like everybody likes likes to, like, talk about themselves, like, that's just, <laughs> yeah. like, like, a common thing that everybody does, but um, I think the questions are made so that they can, the answers can be super, like, personalized, which is cool, and it gets everybody talking, and it breaks any, like, awkward tension that we have in the beginning of class, because I think that when you first walk into class, people are tired and they don't know what to expect of the class. And there's like a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of tension, and then QOTD kind of just breaks it, which is cool. So it sounds like the kids really enjoy QOTD. Have you ever had a problem with them getting distracted at the start of class? Yes, so that definitely did happen um, earlier in the fall. And I lost some precious class time. Um, But one thing I started to do to address this is so I now always pair QOTD with some other simple tasks that I need to do. So for example, if I need to go around and check their homework, I'll ask them to discuss the QOTD while I'm walking around. So while I'm going around and handing you guys a packet, uh, you guys want to do a question of the day? Yeah, yeah. Right. Do you have any other final comments or things you've learned about QOTD that you didn't expect? Yeah, so during our synchronous meeting uh, where we chat with other fellows in the program about our teaching, one of the fellows asked if I always do QOTD in the beginning of class. This made me question the timing of QOTD. So I tend to do it in the beginning of class, but sometimes I'll save it for sometime in the middle of class, especially when we have those long 100-minute lab blocks. Another thing that I like about it is that after the students discuss the question with their neighbors, I usually allow two to three people to share their response with the whole class. If I feel like I haven't heard somebody's voice in a few days, I feel pretty comfortable asking, Johnny, do you want to share your response? I'm putting the student on the spot a little bit, but the stakes are low and they know that there's truly no right or wrong answer and the students get an opportunity to practice their voice in a class-wide setting. Thank you. So I think we're out of time, but thank you for talking um, about your inquiry project. Thank you for listening. In this next segment by Efrain Pontaza of the boarding school program, he explores the difference between language learning and language acquisition in an effort to make learning French what he describes as an engaging, dynamic, and fun process for his students. Efrain talks about various instructional strategies he implemented in his curriculum in order to facilitate what the literature calls the communicative approach. Most importantly, in this segment, Efrain points to a variety of types of data that help him explore how these strategies were influencing student learning. He shows us that systematically observing students, talking with them, and closely studying their work are all ways for us to think differently about the way we structure curriculum. Hello everyone, I'm Efrain Pantaza and you're listening to LanguageCast, a podcast that gives listeners some insight into my inquiry project, which analyzes the question of how can I help my students acquire the French language as opposed to only learning it? Now I want you to keep these two terms in mind, acquisition and learning, as I'll be referring to them throughout this podcast. Today's episode, we'll be looking at the role of the communicative approach, particularly when applied in the language classroom context. We'll first be learning about the approach itself, some of its history, its principles, and then I'll be sharing with you my personal story. 
how I have introduced it in my French 3 classroom, and how it helps answer my inquiry question. We'll then finish by hearing a clip from an interview done with both my colleague and mentor, Dr. Virginia Bernizzi. Dr. Invernizzi is a big advocate of the communicative approach. Her perspective on work on the subject will hopefully shed some light on the topic and convince the listener that language learning does not have to solely rely on the systematic study of grammar, but that it can be an engaging, dynamic, and fun process. Without further ado, let's get right to it. Up until the 1960s, Language was, for the most part, taught as a system of grammatical patterns and structures that needed to be mastered. Much of this reasoning stemmed from the idea that language was highly complex, and the learner needed to employ a rigorous study of its rules and exceptions in order to become fluent. This almost mathematical way of looking at language would change in the 1970s, when a document written by British linguist David Wilkins emphasized the importance of the communicative uses of language, Now, this is important because with the publishing of this document, language learning began to be described differently. Rather than focusing on the traditional concepts of grammar and vocabulary, teachers were encouraged to develop procedures that acknowledged the interdependence of language and communication. In other words, language came to be acquired through communication rather than learned through grammar. We can think of it this way. If the grammar-based approach viewed language instruction as learning to use it, the communicative approach regarded language instruction as using it to acquire it. I would like to share two types of activities that rely on the communicative approach and that I've carried out with my French theory students, and explain how these activities are connected to principles found within the approach itself. The first activity consists of writing an open-ended question on the board and having my students answer the question in their journal. After five minutes have gone by, I'll ask them to stand up and share their response with at least two other peers. This gets them up and moving around the room, and actively using the language to communicate and express their thoughts. I have found that this type of activity has greatly helped my students better acquire the grammar and vocabulary being covered in class by engaging their ability to express themselves and use much of the vocabulary and grammar tenses covered in previous units. And this is exactly what the communicative approach emphasizes. It does not consider grammatical and structural features as being the primary components of language learning, but rather supports the idea that language should mainly be a system to express meaning. You can study how language works and functions, but if you never put it into practice, you will be left knowing how to conjugate verbs, but will experience great difficulty using these verbs in a casual conversation. The second type of activity I enjoy using with my students is role-playing. I usually tie this activity with a short film we might be watching in class. I'll split the students into small groups of two or three and assign each student a character from the film. They then have to reenact a particular scene but come up with a different ending. I emphasize the importance of interpreting their character's personality and might even ask them to use a specific tense or vocabulary throughout their skit. Now, this activity not only gets my students speaking in the target language, but their confidence and motivation in using the language during class likewise increases. I can often see this from their level of engagement and eagerness to participate. And this activity touches on the second principle found in the communicative approach, which is viewing language's primary function to allow interaction and communication between individuals. Here, language learning takes on a social aspect, and it goes from being an individual enterprise, what can perhaps be imagined of a student who is completing a worksheet, conjugating different verbs in the past tense, to a collaborative task, 
with having two students work with each other using the language to complete the task. In many regards, this gives language learning a more natural approach and turns into what American linguist Stephen Krashen refers to as language acquisition. If you think about it, we as kids learn our mother tongue from the interactions we have with the people that surround us and are not forced to sit down and memorize grammar rules as kids. Looking at the data I've collected over time, I've noticed that when less class time is spent on grammar and more of it is spent on using the language through activities that rely on communication, students' ability to use the language both written and spoken increases, as does their motivation and engagement levels. This is something I've noticed in my observations, particularly from a student named Ben who tended to be soft-spoken and got low grades early in the academic year. By the end of the fall semester, he was speaking much more in class, and his grade had also improved. When having a conversation with Ben, he attributed his improvement to the fact that he was using the language to communicate in every class, allowing him to gradually pick up the vocabulary and better understand the usage of grammar tenses. Now, before this podcast concludes, I would like to share with you an excerpt from an interview I conducted with Dr. Virginia Vernizzi. In this interview, you will hear Dr. Invernizzi discuss the importance of creating an environment where students remain in the target language, and also give us an insight of how she goes about incorporating the communicative approach in their own classroom. For that communicative approach, for me, the most important thing is that they stay in the language, and that not... Not it, it is not it isn't me that stays in the language. Of course, I do stay in the language, but it is them. So um, they walk into the classroom and they're in Spanish, in the target language the entire time. As I tell the students, you don't say to the person next to you, "How was how was your test last period?" You say, "Cómo te fue en el examen." Um, you don't say to the person next to you, do you have a pencil, in case you need one. You say, tienes un lapiz, me prestas un lapiz hoy. So everything in the classroom, you know, they need to use the, 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 the language that they need at the moment. Do it in Spanish. In Spanish 1, it's a little bit harder, but already in Spanish 1 at the end, and Spanish 2, 3, 4, 5, etc., you can certainly do that. Um, oftentimes, we forget that um, the students can say all those things in the target language, and we should gently, um, kindly guide them to always stay in the language. It sounds to me like you're saying that... Um... Part of what makes this approach so effective is the fact that students are actively using it within a, within a specific context, right? Oh, absolutely. The context and their lives and uh, what they need at the moment, uh, what it, that's what's important. Saying what you need to say, not fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. You know, fill in the blanks, sure, it's, it's, like, it's like exercise for the game. The game is life. And the game is what you should be playing all the time. And the exercises help you to have a strong game. So, um, yeah, we do less fill-in-the-blanks, probably, than the real situation, the real needs. And when we, you know, even when we're learning the subjunctive, we certainly do fill-in-the-blanks. They need to learn that subjunctive. But I also say, now, make sentences about your life with a subjunctive. Tell me... Um, and when we have conversations, let's say we watched a movie and we're 
discussing the movie, I say, okay, as we converse, you need to use subjunctive in this discussion. So, um, so that the subjunctive is in the context of what they're doing. Um, the preterite and imperfect is in the context of what we're doing. And that was Dr. Vernizzi's point of view on the matter. I would like to thank all of you for being great listeners and hope that today's podcast has made you look at language learning from a different perspective. One tricky question for our iStar fellows is how they navigate and negotiate the various goals and priorities that surround them. Our fellows are, first and foremost, teachers in their school departments, but they are also learning about pedagogy, curriculum, and cultural concerns from program faculty and from their school-based mentors. This next segment from Heidi Rodriguez of the Day School Program echoes some of what we just heard from Ephraim about the need to look carefully at the department's goals and approaches as fellows consider how to structure their own curricular or non-curricular interventions. Heidi's segment emphasizes the important role of collegial conversations and how she thought about and took action to realize her desire to integrate film studies into her English curriculum. She seeks to create continuity for her students in their English classes from year to year and help them develop critical thinking skills that they can apply to other classes. Like Sun Ho, Heidi harkens back to her own experience as a learner in order to encourage deep understanding of written and visual texts. Hello, welcome to Ms. Rodriguez's podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen to little old me and my educational journey. Today, I'm here to talk to you about my inquiry project, which has to do with incorporating film into the English classroom. The smaller question that I'm asking myself is, how does film meet the learning goals of an English curriculum? While I'm reflecting upon this, I'm going to be asking a couple of my colleagues, chair of the department, Will Fisher, and English colleague and future film teacher, Ed Schmidt, about their backgrounds in film and English. I must first specify that by film, I don't solely mean showing film clips in the classroom. My initial idea was to bring a mix of filmmaking, screenwriting, and theory into the classroom. Quite ambitious, yes, but quite inevitable to me. Because of the omnipresence of screens in this digital age, visual narratives have become more and more accessible. It also stems from my own experiences in the classroom, specifically those interdisciplinary courses. In high school, I wanted to be part of as many English classes as possible, and as an avid moviegoer at the time, I was eager to take a class called Rebels and Outsiders and Film Through American Literature. In this class, we watched a range of movies that talked about the American experience while concurrently reading literature, talking about what it means to be an insider, talking about what it means to be an outsider, about rebelling against being American, about succumbing or wanting, aspiring to be an American. We would analyze movies as if they were pieces of literature. We would read books and talk about them as if they were blockbusters that we encounter in a movie theater. For the first time, I understood why I liked movies and books so much. A glimpse into somebody else's, many other subjectivities. And though this is what I hope to achieve with my own students, there are also some curricular goals that I have to keep in mind with my ninth graders. The focus of the ninth grade curriculum is to settle them into the seriousness of literature, have them appreciate the stories, and build up their reading and writing skills. Will goes on to say more about the curriculum. Ninth grade, I need you to learn how to read. I need you to learn how to analyze what you have read. 
I need you to learn how to write about what you have analyzed, what you have read, in very concrete, in very specific, and very granular ways. When talking with Will about incorporating film studies into the English classroom, he also brought up how little time they've had to actually analyze literature. It's not that they can't talk about film. It's not that they can't talk about film and books at the same time. The analysis that is required of this institution, the seriousness and the rigor of that analysis, would be really hard to do in two different modes as a 14-year-old. So part of it also has to do with their age, the fact that they're freshmen in a very, very challenging institution. The other part also has to do with that kind of reputation that film has. They may perceive it as a kind of easy class, but the truth of the matter is that it's a very difficult subject. You know, if you're going to bring film in, you have to talk about it with the same rigor and with the same sort of scaffolding as you would talk about literature, right? You have to, you have to come in and say, okay, so this is how we look at a film. And surely enough, Will was right. At the beginning of the year, when I told one of my classes about my inquiry project, they immediately asked, OMG, instead of writing an essay, can we make a movie? Can we use TikTok? I definitely want my students to be metaphorically jumping out of their seats when they talk about our class. I want them to be exhilarated about doing an assignment. But I also want them to be excited about learning literature in the classroom, not simply producing some of the content they already do as a distraction from their usual education. My question does not have to do with the apps that they use on a daily basis, TikTok, Snapchat, and a foreseeable quack-quack, but it does play off of their perception of narratives. Perhaps a more appropriate year to start engaging with this duality is their senior year. By then, they will have had enough time to understand themselves as readers and writers, and they will have chosen to be part of a classroom that assesses stories at their hearts. Ed Schmidt is going to be teaching film for the first time, and I'm very excited to see how that goes in the coming semester. What drew me to this is that it's an elective for seniors. I think the other thing that really interests me about teaching film to high school students is that all they do is watch images, watch moving images all day long, and yet I think they have a very poor sense of the grammar and the language of that medium. In the same way I want my ninth graders to learn how to write sentences well, I want these kids to learn the syntax of movie making, of, of telling a story through film. And the better they understand the technique of filmmaking, the wiser they'll be. It's really hard to teach film. It requires its own grammar, set of analytical parameters, and seriousness that students aren't taught to embrace. Rather, it's a source of entertainment to offset their academic work. Many of them report using it as a means of bonding with friends and family during their free time. This isn't to say that they disengage with their critical abilities throughout the film, but it is to say that they're not given the tools to deeply assess this medium for what it is and what it does. To fruitfully engage with this subject means I must break down visual codes in the classroom. But due to the limited amount of time they've been studying literature for, there's little to no space to incorporate serious film theory into the classroom. I do believe there's a space for film in the English classroom. I just think it has to do with context. How long have students been reading deeply and how long have I been teaching? Things take time. It takes time for students to develop the muscles to understand two different concepts, no matter how related they are. 
It takes time for me to understand my practice and my students. What do they need? What do they need from me? In the ninth grade, I'm tasked with not only establishing the basics of the foundation of students' relationships to reading and writing for the school, but I'm also in charge of creating a community, a culture amongst the students. They need to know that English is a safe space for them to talk about words, to talk about who they are through their words, and try to understand others for their own words. And truly, in order to actually practice empathy, you have to encounter those that are unlike you. You have to be willing to lean into a different relationship to this world. And that's what film and literature do for me, in very different capacities, on totally different wavelengths. As I continue to work on my project for the rest of the year, I'll be more selective about the moments in which I'd like to include film into the English classroom. But I also want to let them know that it's something that they should see on the horizon. It's not really something that they can grasp at the moment, but it's something to look forward to. The segments you just heard all highlight the lessons our fellows are learning that shape how they think about their inquiry questions, how they understand the work they are doing as teachers, how they interact with their students, and how they collaborate with their colleagues. These reflections are an important part of the work our fellows do to refine and shape their inquiry projects throughout the year. An important dimension of the inquiry process is how our fellows devise ways to integrate data collection into their teaching. In our next episode, we'll be featuring three segments that show how our fellows think creatively about data collection in relation to their evolving inquiry questions. I'm Christina Tucker for Sonia Rosen, and thank you for listening to the Independent Inquiry Podcast, a production of the Penn GSE Independent School Teaching Residency Program. Our theme music is Big Easy Horns by Origami Pigeon, and our logo was designed by 2020 iStar alumna Kaylee McGonigal. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.